As we hear from God's word, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we desire to keep your righteous rules. So give us life, O Lord, according to your word. Your testimonies are our heritage forever, for they are the joy of our hearts. Father, by your Holy Spirit, open your word and incline our hearts to follow it forever, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. You'll find that towards the end of the New Testament. I believe on page 1275 of the Pew Bibles between Philemon and James. And we just want to read the first three verses of the chapter 1 of the Hebrews. Um, It's a very famous passage probably to many of us, and we want to consider it in the connection with the revelation of the Holy Gospel as we think about it this evening. So Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll begin our reading at verse 1, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Uh, We're stopping there in the middle of a thought, but that's as much as we uh, can cover, I think, this evening when we think about this together. Uh, We've been just beginning the section of the catechism on grace or salvation, thinking about our deliverance and how that is accomplished by our God. Um, And last week really was our job to kind of think about the accomplishment of redemption, how redemption is accomplished by God offering satisfaction for our sins. Um, And that's what we're kind of considering as we go forth, how satisfaction is made for the wrath of God for two important reasons in the life of God's people, the the two things we need to have happen for us um, in order for us to be restored is to escape the punishment that should be ours and to be returned to the favor of God. Um, we, we looked and thought about the fact that unless God's wrath is satisfied, those two things cannot happen. We cannot escape judgment. We cannot be returned to God's favor. Um, and so we went through a sort of mental exercise last week that the catechism led us through. Who can satisfy this justice? Uh, who can set us free from the wrath of God? Where can we look to find satisfaction. And when we looked around at what we found in this world as possible substitutes or possible satisfiers, we might say, we found nothing but insufficiency. Uh, You might remember we looked around and said, can we ourselves satisfy the wrath of God? Well, no, we can't do that because we have insufficient holiness. We are not righteous enough to serve as saviors. Question 16 This week drives that point home. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Because God's justice requires that human nature which has sinned must pay for its sin, but a sinner could never pay for others. And that 
that is very important for us to understand. I can't pay for myself because I'm a sinner. No one else can pay for me because they're also sinners. What I have to find is a true and righteous person. Now, where can a true and righteous person be found? We looked around the world and Micah said, there's no one. Uh, there's no one holy in the world. So we said, you know, we look around and we see insufficient holiness. Uh, we look around the world and see an insufficient likeness. If we were to look to another creature, could they step in and satisfy the wrath of God? Well, no, God's not going to punish uh, a non-human creature for human sin. Um, God is not going to punish the, the righteous for the unrighteous. Right? That's one of the problems that we that we find that God is not going to put the punishment for human sin on another creature. Um, And even if that creature had the sufficient likeness, they wouldn't have the sufficient power. So the the three insufficiencies we confronted, insufficient holiness, insufficient likeness, and insufficient power. Who could endure the day of the wrath of God? Uh, Who could endure that wrath and deliver others from it? No mere creature has that power. Uh, that was the point driven home by question 14, that no, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver us from it. And that's what makes what question 17 says so important in this regard. Why must the mediator also be true God? Why is a mere creature insufficient to save? Because only God would have the power to deliver us from the wrath of God. Um, why must the mediator be also be true God in question 17? So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Uh, so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity. That is such a fine theological statement. It's one of the great statements of the catechism to help us understand why the mediator had to be both true and righteous man and also true God. Because only God would have the ability to bear the wrath of God against sin. No other mere creature would have the power to bear the wrath of God and deliver us from it. And we say if we, if we narrow the terms to that, those requirements, true and righteous man, true God, where are we left looking for our salvation? Well, there's only one place we can look, right? To the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only true mediator and deliverer that we can look for and find salvation in his name. Question 18, then who is this mediator, true God and at the same time true and righteous man? The answer is our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given to us for our complete deliverance and redemption. That's the good news of the gospel. Where everyone else was insufficient, Christ is all-sufficient. Christ is the Savior and the only Savior that we need to work complete salvation, all of the salvation that's necessary for His people to help us to escape the judgment of God and to restore us to the favor of God. Christ is all we need. He is all-sufficient to deliver His people. And the question that we want to particularly ask tonight, you might think it looks like we've just gone through the catechism, so we're almost done, right? Wrong. Um, we have more to consider because what I want to pause and reflect on is how do we know this? Um, is this just our own willful hoping? 
Um, is this just what we have constructed theologically? How do we come to know this truth? And it's very important that we understand that, that the importance of question 19. How do we come to know this? How does this way of escape, this way of returning to God's favor that can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ, how does that become known to us? We know where how we figured out our sin and misery. The law of God told us that. How do we learn this, this glorious truth of deliverance in Christ? It's the Holy Gospel that tells us that. And that's what we want to think about tonight in connection with Hebrews 1 through 3. These truths that are revealed to us by God in the Holy Gospel. That Holy Gospel that was proclaimed all the way back in, the, in paradise after the fall. All the way through with increasing clarity until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. The gospel was proclaimed by his servants before his coming. And then the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world who signaled a new era of revelation. Not just one who proclaimed the gospel more fully than anyone had ever proclaimed it before, but did what according to question 19? Not only proclaimed the gospel, but fulfilled the gospel. And that's what Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 celebrates. That's what we want to pause and meditate on, is how the gospel was not only proclaimed by God to his people, that we might look for the mediator and deliverer, but how in these last days he's revealed to us the gospel has actually been fulfilled by the Son of God who's come. Uh, that's really the glory of what Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 tells us. And so we want to think about the revelation of the Holy Gospel um, and since we've had something of a longer introduction, I just have two points. Um, the revelation we see in Hebrews 1 through 3 is a revelation in contrast and a revelation in Christ. That's how we want to think about the revelation as it's pictured to us in chapter 1, 1 through 3. A revelation in contrast and a revelation in Christ. Um, there's a number of contrasts that are given for, for us in the beginning of this letter to the Hebrews. Um, and it points us to a variety of contrasts we see in these first three verses. Um, there's a contrast between long ago and now. Um, there's a contrast in the manner in which the gospel comes. And all of these contrasts are important. Um, there's a contrast in time that we could reflect on. Um, begins by saying long ago, long ago in many times and many ways, God revealed, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. It's a contrast in time. There was a time long ago where God spoke to his people. Um, it's a past time. It's a time that's presented to us by the writer of Hebrews as the way it was long ago, now over. At one time, God spoke this truth through servants, through prophets, uh, spoke in many ways, right? And, and that's what we do in the, in the history of redemption. We look back and see how the word long ago given has become more and more clear as God has gone on. Uh, the seed of the woman that was promised way back in paradise, and it becomes increasingly clear this is going to be the offspring of Abraham, who will be a blessing to the world. Uh, he'll be the offspring of David, who will also be king, 
the prophets continue to see things about this, this Savior that's coming. And in many ways, in many places, they, they revealed the truth about who was coming. But that was a past era in the way God talked to us. That is the way it used to be. And what is the writer of Hebrews celebrating? That old way of speaking, that long ago era, is over. And something new has come. That long ago time is contrasted with what time? These last days. There is a long ago time that's over and a time that's going on now. And what is the time that's going on now? These last days. That's the time we're living in now. That's what the writer of Hebrews is driving for driving forward for God's people. We are living in these last days. And why is that supposed to be an encouragement to God's people? Because when God spoke long ago, through his prophets to the fathers, they were always looking for these days. They were saying, you know, in this day, where, where bad things are happening, but there's a day coming. They were always saying, in those days, Something's going to happen. In those days, a new situation will come. After this, there's going to be another time. And what is the writer of Hebrews saying in an exciting way to the people of God? We can contrast that long ago with the now. That time of long ago when they were looking for another day that was coming. We're living in that day. We're living in the day they were looking forward to. This is the present time that they were hoping for. We are living in these last days. The days of fulfillment. The days of deliverance. The days of hope that God's people were looking for. It's a really important contrast in time that's given here right at the beginning, the writer of Hebrews. Contrasting that time that was and the exciting time that is. And what makes it so exciting, it's the manner in which God is speaking to his people in this time. Because we could say, in addition to a contrast in time, there's a contrast in manner. How did God speak long ago? He spoke by the prophets. He spoke by his servants. And that was glory, to have God speaking. To have people who could come to his people and say, thus says the Lord. You have a God who speaks to you and speaks to you with clarity. To have these servants come, that was a blessing for God's people. And that happened by the prophets in many ways over a long period of time. And that was a blessing to have that. To have people come and speak at a great variety of detail. We could translate these words at length with particulars. Um, and the catechism is capturing how that happened, right? That began all the way back in paradise. And later he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and the prophets. He foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Many times, in many ways, God spoke. All of these servants, all of these in service to his people that we might learn about his gospel and the good news of what was coming. But what was true of all of that speaking? It was always looking forward to something else that was coming. It was all by its nature 
incomplete, predictive, and preparatory. It was always looking forward. It was always looking for something more. It was always looking for something that would be fulfilled. Right? It's a wonderful way of speaking about the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law as being foreshadowing. Foreshadowing something else that was coming. Foreshadowing realities that would one day come. That was how God spoke then. But in these last days, how does God speak? Not by servants, not by prophets, not by foreshadowing symbols, not even by patriarchs. How does God speak in these last days? Not by servants, but by a son. Not by servants, but by the son. This is a better word. This is the word that all of those other words were looking for. Everything that was predicted, everything that was being prepared, everything that was incomplete before finds its completion in him, was predicting him, was preparing God's people for him when he would come and speak. Not as one who comes and says, thus says the Lord, but one who comes and says, I say to you. Right? That, that's what sort of sets Jesus Apart when he comes into the world, people say, who is this that teaches with this kind of authority? Right? If I got up here and say, well, you've heard it said in God's word, but I say to you, that would be the last day I did this job. Right? You'd be someone else here next week. Our elders are too good to let that slide. Um, But what would happen, but what happens when Jesus comes into the world? You've heard it said, but I say to you. And the people say, who is this? He teaches with authority. Who is he? He's the son. He's the son that everybody was pointing to, right? And saying, there is one who's coming. Moses talked about it. You think I'm a great prophet? There's another prophet coming. Uh, John the Baptist talked that way. You think I'm great? I'm not fit to tie his shoes. Uh, There's a greater one coming. There's a greater priest coming. There's a greater king coming. Right? Every time Jesus wanted to really confound the people that were asking him questions, he would say, let me ask you a question. If David's son, who comes after him, if David calls him Lord, how can David call him Lord if he's David's son? Shouldn't the son call his father Lord? And that's always when they stopped asking him questions, when he would pass them through the Psalm 110 test. Why would David call this king that's coming Lord? Why would he say, the Lord says unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet? Who is this person that David would call Lord? They never had an answer for that. They never had an answer. They should have. Because everyone who had spoken had told them to expect him. The one who would come into the world. That's the excitement with which the writer of Hebrews wants us to be gripped right at the beginning of his letter. Here is the one who's come, who you can listen to, who people have always been waiting to listen to, and in these last days he's come and he's spoken. God no longer is speaking by servants, he's speaking by his son. The son who not only more completely reveals the gospel than anyone else could reveal it before, but who also does something 
that no one else could do before. Not just preach the gospel, but make it a reality. Make the good news happen. That's what the son does in coming into the world. He fulfills the good news. His word is a word of completion. His act is an act of fulfillment. Everything that's promised and predicted is accomplished by him. And that's why we we confess, not only does he fully reveal the gospel to us, he fulfills the gospel. He is everything that was promised. Um, That's the good news of the gospel. Um, God has spoken to us now in a new time, in a better manner. And who is he speaking to? Right, We see a contrast in the audience who receives the word. The long ago is contrasted with the these last days. The, the former way of speaking is contrasted with the son who comes now. And the audience is contrasted. Who was the first era of revelation for? It was for the fathers. It was for our fathers in the faith, for different people living in a different time. Who is this current revelation for? It's for us. Right? Long time ago and long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us. Spoken to us by his son. That's the good news of the gospel too. Is you're the intended audience of the son who speaks. Who speaks that better word than any word that's been heard before brings that word with completion. And we should be sort of blown away by the one who speaks to us now. I think that's why the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand the revelation in contrast in all these ways to bring us to the point of meditating on the Son who brings us this revelation. So we first have the revelation in contrast, all these ways that are better now, and then the revelation that comes to us in Jesus Christ. Who is the son who is speaking to us now in these last days? Um, And verses 2 and 3 are filled with glory. Um, That's why I could stop at the end of verse 3 and say, you know what, that's enough. The second half of verse 2 and verse 3 are enough for us to think about tonight. Speaking of the glory of the son who speaks. Because the second part of verse 2 to verse 3 are one of the greatest and most glorious statements and descriptions of Christ that we can find in God's word. Of who it is who's speaking to us now in these last days. Um, And we could try to think about how to arrange this and how to think through who it is who's speaking to us, but we're probably best served using the three offices of the Lord to think about how he speaks to us. And what are those offices? Prophet, king, and priest. That's the order I think they come to us in this text. Who is this Christ who's speaking to us? Who is the one who speaks in these last days? Well, he is the prophet par excellence. He is the one who can speak like no other person spoke before. Not just because he's a son rather than a servant, but for the knowledge that he has. Um, Prophets were human beings like us. 
That's not earth shattering. You don't need to go to seminary to learn that. Prophets were human beings like us. But what qualified them for office? They would have a vision of the Lord. They would be caught up oftentimes into the sort of divine heavenly counsel and given a vision of what they are to go and do and God would give them a word and that would empower them then to go forth in the name of the Lord and speak what they had heard. That was always what was sort of involved in the office of the prophet, to have been sort of caught up into the divine counsel and to be sent forth with a mission. You know, Isaiah is an easy one to think of, being caught up into the throne room of the Lord and being told out to go out with a word for God's people. That's what, that's what prophets did. But they were people like us who were lifted up to get a vision and then were to go out in the world and preach it. What makes the son so different as a prophet? He's not lifted up from the earth to hear a word from heaven and then to go and preach that word. He is the heavenly glory of God come to earth. He's the one who from the foundations of the world before the beginning of time into eternity in a way we can't think about it, has been eternally in the counsel of his Father. That, that divine counsel of the Trinity that we can confess but we can't define, we can talk about but we can't fully understand, that fellowship, that inter-Trinitarian fellowship that was between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Son comes to earth speaking what he's seen that no one else has seen. What he knows that no one else knows. Right? What does the son know when he comes in the world? He knows the depths of the mind of the father. He knows the depths of the heart of the father. He knows just how much the father loves the world he created. Just how much the father loves the people he sent the son to save. Who knows exactly what his father's will is. And can speak it as someone who knows it like no one else knows it. There's something awesome about that. We should see the uniqueness of Jesus coming in this way. We get glimpses of it from the Holy, from the Holy Gospels in the, in the New Testament when John, for example, in John 3, 31 to 34 says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Um, That's a wonderfully profound thing to say, isn't it? He is from above. And what a sad thing it is that John says, he says what he says and no one else can say it and people don't listen. There are things that only Jesus can tell us. That if we don't hear it from him, we can't hear it from anywhere else. Because there's only one person who's from above who comes and speaks with that kind of knowledge. One commentator said, the son who is from above hears the words and sees the works of God by virtue of intimate and immediate communion with God his Father. And he declares them and does them. Not one of the prophets nor all of them together could match a son as a messenger for truth known and declared. No one knows the love of the Father 
better than the Son. No one knows the will of the Father better than the Son. Uh, It's a glory that the Son comes to speak to us as the prophet par excellence. Uh, The one who has known the Father from the beginning and speaks what he's seen and heard from eternity. Uh, That's glory. He's not only the prophet who can speak a unique word, he's also the king who has reigned. Uh, This section begins and ends with kingly language, uh, spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things. That's this sense of being appointed as the king of all things. Um, And he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Um, That's a kingly act to sit down, to be enthroned over all. Um, And so this this passage is hedged in by this description of the Lord who is also the king of all things. The one who speaks is not just a prophet, he's a king. He's been crowned and enthroned by his father. That's the one who's speaking to us now. And what kind of king is he who speaks to us? Well, he's the king of creation. He's the one who's made all things. Right? He has appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. Here is the king of creation through which the whole world has been made. Uh, the king who is the rightful ruler over all things that are. Um, you know, Mark 10 talks about those who seem to be rulers. He is the ruler. Everyone else in the world seems to be rulers. Jesus is the ruler. He's the ruler of all creation because it was all made through him. He is the king of creation who speaks to us. It was made through him. It exists and is upheld by the word of his power. Um, not only did, was all things made through Jesus, as John tells us in John 1, but everything that is in the world is upheld by the word of his power, Paul tells us in Colossians 1. He is and continues to be the king of creation. He always is reigning over the things that he has made. All things are dependent on his divine agency, not just for their existence, but for their, not just for their creation, but for their continuing existence. Who is upholding the world by the word of his power? It's the king of creation. He's the one who is speaking to us. He's the one who is driving this world to its appointed end. Um, He's not just ruling over it. He is moving it towards the end for which the father made it. Um, History has been driven to its fulfillment by its king. That's glory. That's good for us to remember. When we feel like the world is off its tracks going who knows where. It's not. There's a king in heaven who's guiding it. Who made it. Who's upholding it by the word of his power. Who's moving it to the end for which he's intended. Um, The judgment against all those who are opposed to him. And the restoration of all those who believe in him. The salvation of his father's people. That's the end to which he's moving the world. Um, The Holy Gospel comes not just by his word, but by his command. The king is fulfilling the good news. He's making the good news a reality in this world. 
And he's not just the king of creation, he's the king of glory. There's no one who comes and speaks with a glory like this king. Um, He's been appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Who is the son that speaks to us now? He is the king of glory. And again, we have, you know, one of the deepest mysteries that we can have is the doctrine of the Holy Trinity to think about the son being co-equal with the father. Um, And some of those confessions we make about the Trinity, and they can be too much for us to grasp and to hold on to. We can confess them but not fully understand them. But God has given us something that we can understand. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been seen in the world. And God's word says if you really want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus. If you really want to know what God is like, it's not an impenetrable mystery that can't be solved in the sense that you can look to Jesus and know what God is like. And it's a wonderful thing that's given here as a picture to us of the Holy Spirit both of the light and the likeness of God. Um, what, what is the glory of God that shines out? How can we understand the glory of God? Well, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is the light of the glory of God. He is the radiance of God shining forth. If God's glory is conceived of as light, Jesus is the light that shines forth. Boys and girls, maybe you've drawn the picture of the sun before. Then you have little lines coming off the sun or little triangles coming off the sun. At least that's how I drew it when I was younger. Um, And you can say, that's the sun. And what are those pictures coming off? That's the light coming off the sun. And the writer of Hebrews says, if you really want to understand the light of the glory of God shining out, Jesus is that radiance shining out. Jesus is the glory that you see. If you want to understand something of the glory of God, you look at the radiance of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's not like Moses who came down the mountain and was reflecting the glory of God for a time and then went back to just being Moses. Remember there was a time he'd been in the, before God and his face shone so brightly that when he came back to the camp, they were saying, could you put a veil on because we can't handle that glory. That's just reflected glory. That, that dimmed over time. Jesus is that glory shining out of the Father. It gives us a sense of who God is to understand Jesus as the outshining, radiating glory of the Father. And he's the one who's speaking to us. Just as you can't separate the sun and its beams, you can't separate the glory of the Father from the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit gives us this wonderful picture of the radiance of the light shining out. Gives us a picture of light, but also gives us a picture of likeness. Because he says that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. He's the exact imprint of his nature. Um, That probably in the context was back how they made coins by taking a lump of silver and smashing it with a die and it would leave the stamp in the coin. Um, I don't know how many of you have stamped coins before, but uh, maybe boys and girls, you've played with Play-Doh and stuck your thumb into the Play-Doh, and when you take your thumb out, you see the image of your thumb there in the Play-Doh. That's what it means to be the exact imprint, that he's 
when God presses his finger, that's what the impression that's left. That's the die that's cast. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's why it was so foolish when the disciples said to him, well, you know, now we'd like to see the Father. We'd really like to know what we've seen you, and that's great, but we'd really like to see the Father. Um, and how does Jesus respond to that? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. If you want to know what God looks like, you look to Jesus. Um, that's the likeness of God. Um, and that's so important for us to understand as we think about our Savior. Um, who, who says to people, come to me, you who weary and are heavy laden, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's been a tendency for some people to take that and say, you know, that's Jesus. He's the God of love. And then there's the Father who I'm kind of worried about. Um, as if the Father is different than Jesus. But what, what does the writer of Hebrews tell us? You want to understand what the Father is like? Look to Jesus. He's the exact imprint of his nature. If he's meek and lowly and one who has compassion for sinners, who is willing to be found by those who seek him, um, who looks at crowds that are scattered like sheep without a shepherd and loves them. That's what the Father is like. The Father has chosen to reveal himself to us in his Son as the exact imprint of his nature. And that's good news for us because it shows us who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's like Jesus. He loves like Jesus loves. He cares like Jesus cares. Um, that's the great good news of the King of glory who comes in these last days to speak to his people. Um, again, as a commentator said, bear in mind that the glory of the Father is invisible unto you until it shines forth in Christ. And that is called the very image of his substance because the majesty of the Father is hidden until it shows itself as impressed on his image. God is made known to us in no other way than in Christ. And we are blind as to the light of God until in Christ it beams on us. It's not just the Holy Gospel. It's not just the good news that we come to understand in Jesus Christ. We come to understand something fundamental about who God is as the God who doesn't just judge iniquity, doesn't just say the day you eat thereof you will surely die, but reveals himself not just to be a just God, but also to be a merciful God, who looks at, at his people when they fall into sin and says, if there's no one else to rescue them, then I'll rescue them. Um, if there's no other way for them to be saved, then I'll make the way. That's the God we have. That's the God we serve, who is also the king of redemption. He's come to save his people from their sins. That's the reason he's been appointed as the heir of all things. That's the reason he's been seated at the right hand of the majesty on high because he came to be a redeemer and he's redeemed. That's the glory of who Jesus is as well. He's the conqueror of all of our sin and misery by serving finally as our priest 
When does he sit down after making purification for sins? Who makes purification for sins? It's the priest. The priest is the one who makes purification for sins. That's the language of an altar and of a defiled people. And what does the priest do? He comes and makes the sacrifice that purifies his people. And that's who Jesus is for us as well. That's what he did on the cross, offering himself as the sacrifice, as the priest, to atone for our sins, to accomplish our redemption, to satisfy the justice of God, that we might escape from his punishment and be returned to his favor. And don't miss the word that Jesus speaks here to us when he comes, that that work is done. Right? He sat down after he made purification for sins. When he had made purification for sins is another way to say it. It makes the point, that's done. He has done that. He has cleansed the defiled. He has offered the sacrifice. He has made us clean. It's not something we're looking forward to happening later. It's happened already. By this work, Jesus Christ, as the heir of all things, has restored us to the family of God. That's the good news of the gospel. That's where deliverance comes from. The Lord Jesus Christ, who's come into the world to save sinners, and who even now, though he's apart from us, never stops working for us. We heard that in Sunday school this morning, that he's praying for us. He's interceding for us. That's the good news. Um, One more quote, and then I'll close. The heavenly existence of the exalted Savior may be described as one of ceaseless activity. He is active, constantly sustaining the universe by his dynamic word. He is as active, enthroned on high. He rules over history until every enemy has been subdued. He is active on behalf of his chosen people as he dispenses mercy, grace, and help to them in the hour of their testing. And as in heaven, whether he has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, he always lives to make intercession for them, whereto he is preparing a place for them. In these last days, he's working. That's the good news, that the gospel has not only been fully revealed, but fulfilled in the Son of God. And we're going to think more about that deliverance, Lord willing, as we go on. But praise God for what he's done by his Son, our prophet, priest, and king. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this word, and we thank you for the revelation of Jesus in these last days. We pray that we would cling to him as all we need for our salvation. We might look no other place to see you than in him. Um, and might rejoice in the salvation that he has won for us and the work he continues to do for us. We thank you for your sending him to us and for his continuing work on our behalf. Hear our prayers, for we pray them in his name.